Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Grams. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2,128 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue with our ongoing series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 10 on a 14-week series from the book of James titled, Wisdom is Faith in Action. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. And I thank you for being here, for each one of you as part of Putnam Congregational Church. It's a blessing to my heart to be here, to be able to have this privilege just to share from God's Word for, with each one of us. And I just pray every week that the messages will impact you as they have impacted me as I prepare for the messages. And we're continuing our series today on the Proverbs of the New Testament, which we call the Letter of James. Last week, we focused on what causes quarrels and fights among people, and specifically between Christians. It stems from insisting that we have our own way. And we also learn how to avoid conflicts by being content with what we have and allowing God's Spirit to control our lives. And James continues this theme this week of self-desire and self-reliance in our passage for today. And if we insist on controlling our lives, God wants to control our lives. Because otherwise we'll fall into the peril of playing God. Playing God is split into two sections for this week. Warning against judging others and warnings about our own self-confidence. So join me on page 1884 of the Pew Bibles, or if you have brought your Bibles, it's James chapter 4, verses 11 through 17. And the passage for today is, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but you are sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, and the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, today and tomorrow we will go into this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? It is a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your own arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So without question, Jesus Christ demonstrates true humility as he voluntarily gave up his heavenly position and came into this world. He became a blue-collar worker. He lived in a precise or perfect obedience to God in the law, and he willingly sacrificed his life for our lives, for the sins that we all commit. This perfect humility of God the Son becomes a model for us in order to follow and pursue humility. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, you must have that same attitude that Christ Jesus had. 
And if we back up two verses from that passage, Paul warned the Philippians against the very same kind of egocentric arrogance that James is focused on in this passage today. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look only for your own interests, but take in the interest of others also. Now, in the broader section of James, between chapter 3, verse 13, and chapter 5, verse 6, James develops this theme. It's called, Real Faith Produces Genuine Humility. And he illustrates this cardinal virtue of the Christian faith with powerful words and compelling images. Now, we see how he has contrasted those who are wise in their own eyes with those who are humble with God's wisdom in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. And we looked at what causes quarrels and conflicts, those selfish ambitions that are cured only by submitting to God in true humility. And that was our lesson for last week. Now, in the present passage, verses 11 through 17, James goes one step further and reveals more ways that we can proclaim a proud spirit. The first has to do is in a way we view other people in verses 11 and 12. James deals with our tendency to take the place of God in other people's lives by judging them and criticizing them. And second, it has to do the way that we view ourselves in verses 13 through 16. And in these verses, he deals with the tendency to take the place of God in our own lives as we presume or boast about ourselves. Now, in both cases, whether we're playing a judge in another person's life or playing the king of our own life, we err because we're taking or usurping a place that's reserved only for God. Now, the objective of playing God in our lives, and we almost look at it as a game, and as we look at other people's lives, we imagine ourselves superior to our Christians, brothers and sisters, or those that are outside the church. And we put them down in various ways. There's so much vitriol and, and hate that's going on in social media and in the news today as we cut each other down. But we take, who take on God's role become a qualified critic somebody who stands in judgment over another person, and when we do so, we're assuming a position of authority over that person. Now, there's two simple rules to this game in verse 11. The first is to speak against a brother or sister in Christ. And what does that look like? Well, the scripture gives us several examples. Using the same Greek word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament and the Greek New Testament, the same word is used, and it means to speak against. And if you'll follow along with me in your bulletin, the side it says, speak against others' games. So let's play this game. Here's are the examples in the Old Testament. Aaron and Miriam spoke against Moses because he married a Cushite woman in Numbers chapter 12. The people of Israel spoke against God by complaining about their conditions in the wilderness. Numbers chapter 21. The psalmist says, A wicked person will speak against his brother, slandering him with lies. In Psalm chapter 50. Job's friends spoke against Job, insulting him and crushing his spirit 
that was within him with their words in Job chapter 19. And the unbelieving, unbelievers spoke against Christians, slandering them as evildoers in 1 Peter chapter 2 and in chapter 3. But what does recounting this Greek translation tell us? Well, let me put it bluntly because that's how James puts it. That Christians who speak against their brothers and sisters in Christ make themselves part of this biblical registry that we just came, that we just read. And that's not necessarily the type of company that we want to keep. But we have switched that up in our modern day a little bit. Let me show you how this game works. When we speak against other persons, to people who are willing to hear us, we tell them these things, hoping that we not only lower the estimate, estimation of that person in another person's eyes, but in the process, we're trying to make ourselves look better. Now, I'm not referring to an earnest concern about somebody else that you share, but this is how they usually go about in the bottom half of that same page we begin statements like, now stop me if I'm wrong, but, or we might say, now I don't mean to be critical, but, or perhaps I shouldn't say anything about him or her, but, or even, well, I really like so-and-so as a person, but, and that's how we have our conversations. The problem is this big butt gets in our way. And we then go on to be critical and judgmental about others. Are we guilty of that? I think all of us are from time to time. And we do so because we're playing judge, taking God's place. James brings us up this horrible habit of judging believers. These two go hand in hand, speaking against and judging another person, slandering a person, and condemning a person. The Bible repeatedly condemns this judgmental attitude, and we learn this so well in the series on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. It says, do not judge others, and you will not be judged. As we've gone through James, how many times does James refer back to the same principles that we learned in the Sermon on the Mount? And I find it curious that those who are most judgmental, those who are most harsh about other people, many times will be guilty of that same, a similar, or even a worse sin in their own lives. Shakespeare put it with this way, Methinks she doth protest too much. Because those things that we protest against so many times are the very things that we're struggling with in our own lives. And this attitude was prevalent in Paul's day, just as prevalent as it is today. In Romans chapter 1, he addresses it. In this, chapter 2, verse 1, he addresses it. You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad. You have no excuse when you say that they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do the very same things. And the idea of the judgmental 
attitude is certainly biblical, as we also learned in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verse 4. How can you think of saying to your friend, let me get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past that log in your own eye? And Paul makes it pretty clear as he refers back to Romans chapter 2, verse 3. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the very same things? And this is why it's so critical that we're careful about judging other people because then we can take the place of God. We become God. It's a game where we are playing God. In short, the Bible targets self-serving, malicious judgments while he does encourage us in his word to be wise and have righteous discernment. Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 24, look beneath the surface and judge correctly. So many times we don't see what's really driving the issues. So let it, let's be clear. James isn't suggesting that we be gullible or permissive, letting people get away with just about anything. But remember in his letter, because James is confronting the Christians of his day, and by proxy, he's confronting us also. But there is a difference between confrontation that builds up one another, to encourage one another, and condemnation where we tear each other down. And the real problem with judging others comes very close to playing God because James reminds us that there is only one lawgiver and judge in verse 12. And only God can pass judgment on a person's actions and motives without fault, without hypocrisy, and without spite. We would fall prey into all those three things. In the final indictment in verse 12, it is packed with an emotional punch in the Greek, and he's saying, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? And we might, in the New, New Living Translation, it puts it this way, so what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Who gave you that right? Or we might paraphrase that to say, who made you God? We rarely know all the facts in a person's situations. We don't know what another person is going through and why they're acting in a certain way. We have no clue many times of what's causing or driving that. The principle bears repeating. Only God is qualified to judge because he is the only one who has all the facts. Otherwise, we are lacking those facts. So that's in verse 11 and 12, where James addresses the problem about playing God in other people's lives. But then he moves on in verses 13 through 16 and looks at playing God in our own lives. And you say, well, I didn't play God in my life. Well, I have to admit that I struggle with this passage, verses 13 through 16 somewhat, in my own life. All my life, I've been a driven person. I like making well-thought-out plans and ensuring that they're executed very well and precisely like I want to, in order to achieve my goals and objectives. I work best when I follow a concise schedule every day. I know what I'm going to do, and I do it. My to-do list drives my agenda on a daily basis. That's how I'm able to drive and work with multiple clients where essentially each one of them is somewhat of a full-time job and then have the privilege of preparing a message for Putnam on Sunday. It's because I'm driven 
and have things laid out so well. And this passage sort of hits to the very core of what's my motive behind it. And while I do work long days, all of us choose to fill our days with what we feel is most important. And what is important to me may not be important to you. In most days, though, I have to admit, not trying to be braggardly, but the results speak for themselves. And it's almost a game in my life where victory is achieved when I accomplish everything I set out to do at the beginning of the day. At the end of the day, I say, well done, and I'm finished for that day. Now, not every day goes that smooth, but that's how my mindset is. So these verses that we're going over now Give me pause to think. And that's what I pray as I'm preparing the messages. Lord, allow these messages to impact those that listen as much as they're impacting my life. So how much do we allow God to work through us? And how much do we seek his guidance in our daily mundane pursuits of life? Suppose the object of the game is to imagine yourself as the final authority over our lives. And we live like it. Well... This is God's business. This is my business. Preparing messages for Putnam. We'll toss that into God's business. Planning my schedule for the day. That's my business. Praying in the morning. We'll classify that as God's business. Working my plan and planning my work. My business. Reading God's word on a daily basis, we'll throw that into God's cart. Reading something for work that's going to help me do my job better, we'll put that in my business. Helping others, praying for others, we'll give that to God. Commanding others in work, working outside, working on the house, working Working, working, working. So many times we don't consider that as God's business. And that's what James is getting at in this. Most of us won't admit that we're banishing God from the, into the back rooms of our lives. But many of us assign him sovereignty over just specific tasks in our lives, keeping those mundane tasks for ourselves. God becomes boss of the religious issues, those that are sacred, those moral matters, those maybe inter even international conflicts, because I have very, very little effect on those, so how could be that? that be my problem? Or even questions of faith. We'll leave that in God's bucket. That's his realm. But we'll handle things like finances and relationships and business decisions and those things that we might think, well, God could care less about those as long as he has my heart on the other items. And at the core of that is a false philosophy. An idea that we're masters of our own destiny and such people recite the hymn of a self-reliance encapsulated in the verses of William Ernest Henley's poem, Invictus, where he said, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's the philosophy of a person who plays God in their own life. 
They pray only for essential things that's in God's bucket. We pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And I've tried it. That's difficult. We call our own shots. The rules of the game, though, are found in James chapter 4, verse 13. And let me break it down. Flip over your bulletin insert, and let's see what James says about it. Rules for playing God in our lives. First, we set our own schedule. James says, today or tomorrow. Second, we select our own path. I'm going into a certain town. Third, we place our own limits. I will stay there a year, maybe two. Fourth, we arrange our own activities. I will do business there. And fifth, we predict the outcome, and I will make a profit. Notice how none of these activities James describes in this verse are negative in and of themselves. Nothing is wrong with planning ahead. Nothing is evil about setting our own schedule. Nothing is terrible about engaging in business, and certainly nothing is sinful about making a profit. In fact, Jesus taught all these principles in his parables and says these are the things that you should do, like the wise stewards that used his mo- the master's money and invested it wisely. Those were what he, they were rewarded for and praised for. So these in and of themselves are not wrong. James describes these as everyday, ordinary activities that we go about in our lives. And that's precisely the point that James is wanting to get across here. Because God is our sovereign Lord, we must consider him in every aspect of our lives. Not only God's business, but my business also. And James goes on pointing out the problems with this go along or get along our on our own attitude. In verse 14, he says, First, as mere mortals, we have no idea what the future will bring. We don't know what will happen today, much less what will happen a year from now or two years from now. If you think back two years before this, before COVID, how much has our lives changed in those two years that we had no clue in November of 2019 was even going to happen? The entire world has been turned upside down and we had no clue that it would. Every one of us is just a heartbeat away from death. I don't want to sound morbid here, but it's a fact. One rude intrusion of an unexpected event could interrupt our entire plans that we have. We could live into our 90s, like Janice and many others within Putnam have, or... We could die tonight. Only God knows. Secondly, playing God in our own lives is risky because we have no assurance of a long life. James describes this like a morning fog that appears suddenly and quickly dissipates. Imagine yourself outside on a cold winter morning and you step out, you put on your your toboggan and you've wrapped it up. Our son Fred crocheted these for for me. So you wrap it up, and you go out, and you breathe in that cold morning air. And what? We see that white breath as we exhale. And just like that, it's gone. So short is our lives. 
Now you say, well, Janice lived 95 years so far, and maybe another, who knows, 10 or 20 years with her. Way Janice is gone. But that's our lives. It's not just the lives of the young that die early, maybe of childhood cancer or something. Even those who have relatively long lives, and I'm sure Janice would agree, the people in their 90s say that it feels just like yesterday that they graduated from high school. And I'm 65 now, and life is just going by so fast. Youth doesn't last. And before you know it, poof, the fog of life dissipates. It dissolves. It happens so fast. By the time your face clears up from acne in high school, your mind starts getting fuzzy. And I know there's some years, hopefully, in between there, but it doesn't seem like it does it. Thirdly, we have no right to ignore God, God's will in any aspect of our lives. In verse 15, James provides a necessary corrective for our folly of playing God. He says, we ought to say, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this and that. Now, you might say that's a minor thing. The Lord wills. In the days past, country folk would say, and you probably have heard me say this, if the good Lord will and then the creek don't rise, we'll do such and such. Now, it's sort of trite, but the people understood that God was in control of their lives. And if the creek did rise and they couldn't get out of their homestead, then that's God wills for them not to go to such and such a place. But James instructs us to say, if the Lord wants us to, if the Lord is willing. And it reflects an attitude and orientation toward life. If we realize that we're not control of our own lives, it's only if the Lord wills it that we'll do such and such. It puts a whole different perspective on our lives. It means submitting ourselves to God, humbly to the one true God who is entitled to be the Lord of all things of our lives. Not just a few things, and we keep the rest. It means erasing from our minds that barrier between the sacred and the secular, between the earthly and the heavenly, between the spiritual and the physical domains and the dichotomies that delegate some things to God and some things to ourselves. And that's why I'm not too big on titles within the church or even in business. It's no more sacred for me to step up here on Sundays and bring a message than it is for Delbert to vacuum our church and the pews that we sit on. There's nothing more sacred about me doing this. Now, I may be more responsible because I'm teaching from God's Word, but it's no more sacred. All things are sacred to God. What Delbert does to keep our church clean is sacred and it's holy. And it should be looked upon as important as bringing God's word. He owns it all. The alternative is to submitting all things, to submitting all things to God, is if we don't, then it's evil. And this is what James teaches us. It's boastful arrogance, living life as if we were masters of our own fate, captains of our own soul. Verse 16 says, otherwise you are boasting about your own pretentious plans 
and all such boasting is evil. And this is what we need to do. We need to take everything in my bucket and put it in God's bucket because it all belongs in God's bucket. There is no my bucket. Might be some pork rinds, but there's no my, my buckets. It's God's bucket. And everything that we do is Lord willing we will do this or that. James concludes by pointing out two ways to stop playing God in our own lives in verse 17. Both relate to true humility that flows from authentic faith. And the first is, know what is right to do. Second, do it. It's not that hard. In fact, it's pretty simple. God has a straight, a standard for right living that transcends our own interest and pursuit. He wants to guide us along the path that he has set for us. To make us hap that happen requires staying close to God in his word. If you're not spending time in God's word on a daily basis, you're missing opportunities to stay close to him. It's shaping our path according to his wisdom because his wisdom is found in his word. The world's wisdom may or may not correspond to God's word. Only God's word brings true wisdom. But that's only half the solution, knowing what to do. The other half is actually doing it. If we continue to live as though God isn't interested in certain areas of our lives, there's no other word for it. It's sin. That's what James tells us here. All bo such boasting is evil. If we try to, recall, uh, try to call our own shots, make our own plans, do our own thing, we're not doing what God wants us to do. And at that point is what James' final warning is. Know the right way, then humbly submit to it. So what's the application of James chapter 4, verses 11 through 17? Psalm chapter 14, verse 1 says, Only a fool says in his, their heart, there is no God. And I suppose that something worse than that is pro than pronouncing that there is no God and living in such a manner is knowing and believing that there is a God and acting like he's not your God. And that's the point of the whole message today. If we stand in judgment over our brothers and sisters in Christ, then we're playing the part of the divine judge. And what did James say? There's only one God, one judge and over it. And when we play, plan our own lives as if God was uninterested or uninvolved, we're playing the role of an exalted Lord. In James chapter 4, verse 17 is especially practical as we tend to approach God's territory. Remember, it is a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. In this short verse, James gives us two simple rules to follow, which I've said. First, you must know what you ought to do. Whatever the cost, you must evaluate your life and make sure it's patterned against, according to God's word and not according to our own habits or traditions. Secondly, we must start doing the right thing. Instead of doing the wrong thing, replace it with the right thing. Simple application, first know, second do. That's this whole passage summed up. And we're guilty of playing sin, the sin of playing God in some degree in our lives. It's hard to break away from it. We play God with others when we talk down and judge them. We play God with ourselves when we don't let him have every aspect of our lives. 
So rather than that me-centered philosophy in Henley's Invictus, how much better would it be to emulate the, the lyrics of Francis Ridley Havengar's hymn, Take My Will and Make It Thine, which is our closing hymn for today, which sums up our lives and what they'll be like if we allow God to be Lord of every area of our life. And here are the words. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow with ceaseless praise. Take my voice and let me sing, always only for my King. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my will and make it thine, it shall no longer be mine. And take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. So as we close, what's keeping us from saying this prayer in our own lives, of the prayer of surrender, as we sing this song today, think about the words that we're singing. So many times we sing and don't even think about the words. So as we sing today, think about these words. And then next week starts the week of Thanksgiving, and we'll have a chance to be thankful for all God does in our lives. And I encourage you to think about what you're going to write on those leaves as we put it on our Thanksgiving tree next week. And we'll focus on that in our fellowship dinner after the service next week, the things that we're thankful for. We know that for, for certain, it, wealth is not a source of Thanksgiving or happiness. And that's what we're going to focus on next week in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, as we look warning to the wealthy. And I'd encourage you to read that before next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We love you. We thank you that we can know with certainty that you have control of all things, that our life is just, especially in light of eternity, just a mist in the air, a vapor, a bubble that comes down and quickly pops. Let us live our lives according to that and allow you to control every aspect of our lives, Father, that we might live in a manner that's pleasing to you. And we know this as we study your word and we come to you in prayer, Father. We thank you for this message that James has given to us. It's so practical even today, over 2,000 years since James wrote it. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your love, your goodness to us. We thank you for this season of Thanksgiving. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.